Exodus, uh, starting at chapter 11, verse 1, going to chapter 12, 13, and then chapter 12, 29, 36. Now the Lord has said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all your people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat meat raw or boiled in water, but roast over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not let any of it till morning. So do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment onto all of the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And now chapter 12, starting at verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his, and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. 
During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, and as you have said, and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we'll all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. Hi, if we haven't met, my name is Mike. I'm one of the ministers here at St. Matt's, but I have not always worked at St. Matt's. In fact, I've not always worked as a minister. Actually, for most of my life, I worked in mining. Uh, I spent much of my young life living and working on gold mines, uranium mines, iron ore mines. And in 2006, something happened in our mining community. It became the focus of the entire mining community around Australia and, in fact, became the focus of the entire nation of Australia and actually some of the countries overseas. In 2006, a mine shaft collapsed. It trapped two miners, they were both alive, trapped 925 metres under the earth, but nobody knew they were alive. They actually survived for five days by using their helmets to catch the water that was dribbling down the rock face uh, that they were trapped in. After five days, rescuers heard their screams and their banging, and boom, our media went crazy with news of life down this mine shaft, and all the tension went on the rescue plan to get these two guys out. Now, in the mining company that I worked for, honestly, that's all that got talked about. Uh, Every morning, every coffee break, every lunch, even meetings with clients, the first things that would get discussed is, what is happening with those two guys? How is the rescue plan going? How long will it be till they rescued? Or will they be rescued? Uh, Quite a few of us have spent time underground. These guys were 925 metres below the earth trap. Would they die there? Uh, I remember at one stage, we all got excited because news broke that the rescuers were 15 metres away from rescuing these two guys. 15 metres, that's all that separated them. took another two days. Another two days to get them. But eventually, after two weeks, uh, they actually got rescued. Uh, here's the photos that kind of went uh, viral back in 2006. That totally was a term. Not. Uh, but these, by viral, I mean they got printed and plastered all around our office. Uh, you went into the kitchen. There they were. You went into the halls. There they were. You went into the elevator. The doors would open up. There were these uh, photos of these two guys. Uh, it really was a great rescue. It was the thing which actually, for those of us who worked in mining, actually just really captured our imaginations and our emotions. But today's passage is way more exciting than that. Uh, And today we actually get to see in this passage a much greater rescue than that. A much greater rescue of helpless and trapped people because tonight, finally, after 11 chapters, we finally see Israel rescued from slavery to Pharaoh. Now, Israel hasn't been trapped down a mine shaft for two weeks. They've been trapped as slaves to Pharaoh for 400 years, generation after generation, born into slavery, only to live lives as slaves, only to die as slaves, trapped for 400 years. And into that desperation and into that hopelessness thunders the first verse of tonight's passage. Have a look at it, it's great. Chapter 11, verse 1. 
Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. At long last. But here it finally comes, after 400 years, the final plague which leads to Israel finally being rescued. And so Moses says to Pharaoh, here is the final plague. At midnight tonight, God himself will come to Egypt and every firstborn son in Egypt will die. That is a really serious plague. Uh, It's different to the first nine plagues that we looked at last week in some ways that are important for us to point out. So firstly, the first nine plagues, there is a sense that God is distant and he sends the plague. So he sends the frogs, he sends the hail, but this plague, God actually comes himself in some sense. Look at verse 4. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight, I, I will go through Egypt. So God comes himself to go house to house through Egypt, and the result will be that the firstborn son in every Egyptian home will die. Uh, now, there's some things that we've got to deal with uh, in that passage. Doesn't God seem a little extreme here? The death of every firstborn son? Like, what kind of God would actually do that? Well, I think it's the kind of God who is just and will not leave evil go unpunished. But what Egypt has done is evil. They have enslaved Israel for over 400 years, but much more than that. If you were here at the start of Exodus, you saw in chapter 1 that they tried to control the population of Egypt by killing the baby boys. Do you remember? Firstly, they tried to get the midwives to kill the boys as soon as they were born, but when that didn't work, they ordered all of Egypt to hunt down and find all the baby boys and throw them in the Nile River to drown them. That is evil. Should God just let that go? Should he just let it go unpunished? What would it say about God if he just kind of saw that happening and just shrugged his shoulders and actually did nothing? But God is just. He will and does judge evil. And that is a good thing. Imagine if there's some criminal gang that operates in your neighbourhood. They hurt kids, they sell drugs, they murder people. But the local police force, they know about it, but actually they just don't do anything. They just shrug their shoulders. What would that say about the police? So they don't care, they're certainly not just, and it's the same with God in some sense. If God just ignores evil and never does anything about it, he doesn't care. And he's certainly not just. I think we actually crave justice in the face of real evil, don't we? Now there was a court case a few years ago of a drunk driver who ran over and killed a kid deliberately, did it on purpose. Uh, Due to a technicality in the trial, he got away unpunished. And I remember the scenes of the family out the front of the law court crying and breaking down, and here's what they cried. They said, they cried out, we have been denied justice. We cannot rest until we have justice. It's not fair. I think that's what every person cries out for in the face of real evil. We actually long for evil to be brought to justice. And that is what is happening in this passage in Exodus. For 400 years, Egypt has oppressed and killed Israel, and God finally, after 400 years, brings justice. 
Now, I, I reckon, actually, for most of us in this room, we get that bringing justice is a good thing, but why do that by taking the life of Egypt's firstborn? Like, isn't that random? Is that extreme? Actually, no, it's kind of measured justice, because that's exactly what Egypt has done to God. Egypt has taken the life of God's firstborn son. Look at how God summed it up back in chapter 4. It's on screen for you. This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go. You see, Israel is God's firstborn son. Israel is God's most important relationship. God has a special relationship with Israel. It's like they are his firstborn son. And for 400 years, Egypt has been crushing God's firstborn son. Egypt has taken the life of God's firstborn son in slavery and in the murder of their babies. And so, in a way that's actually morally equivalent, a way that is sort of equitable and fair, a way that kind of is eye for eye, tooth for tooth, a way that you might say is karma, God will now take the life of Egypt's firstborn sons. God brings judgment in a way where the punishment actually fits the crime. God is just. Uh, he won't let evil go unpunished forever. But he is patient. It actually took 400 years for God to get to this point. 400 years. Now that is pretty patient. You imagine watching for 400 years your firstborn son being crushed, uh, being killed, being murdered. 400 years. God is amazingly patient. But he's also just. So he won't let evil go unpunished forever. Egypt has taken the life of his firstborn son for 400 years, and so now God will take the life of Egypt's firstborn sons. Justice will finally come on evil. It's a, honestly, it's a pretty chilling scene, isn't it? Where we come face to face with God's righteousness, God's holiness, God's justice, and his punishment of evil. But we do also come face to face with his mercy, and his salvation, because he spares the firstborn sons in every Israelite home. You would have noticed in the reading, he tells Israel to go and mark their doors, mark their houses, so that this plague doesn't fall on them. They have to mark it out by taking a lamb and painting the blood on their doorposts, so that when God goes through Egypt and takes the life of every firstborn in every house, he sees a house with blood on it and he knows that an Israelite lives there and he passes over the house. That's where uh, we get the term Passover from. Uh, now, if you read any book on uh, Exodus, they always point out that that is very strange. It's strange, especially if you were here last week, because last week you would have seen uh, that in every plague, Egypt kind of gets uh, hammered by the plague, Israel doesn't, and Israel never, last week, had to go and mark uh, where they lived. So, you think of the cattle. Uh, when God sent the plague on the cattle, all the cattle belonging to Egypt died, but none that belonged to Israel. And Israel didn't have to run around and tie ribbons on the horns of the cows so that God knew which cows were theirs and which ones uh, were not. God knew. Uh, all the plagues worked like that last week. Israel never has to mark out uh, their stuff. So why now? Why all of a sudden, when you get to the tenth plague, does Israel need to mark out the houses that they live in? Doesn't God know? He's God. Of course God knows which houses they live in. See, those marks of blood 
on the houses, they're not actually teaching God which houses Israel live in. They're actually teaching Israel. They're actually teaching Israel that when the judgment of God comes, they need a substitute. Because God could have got them to mark out their houses doing anything. Tie a ribbon on the door, put a chair upside down on the roof, absolutely anything. But God gets them to mark out their house using the blood of a sacrificed lamb to teach Israel that when the judgment of God comes, they need a substitute. Let me try and show you what I mean. When When the judgment of God comes to Egypt, it's not just that the Egyptians are in trouble. Israel will be in trouble as well. Israel are not guiltless. Israel are not sinless. Only a few chapters ago, we saw them cursing Moses and doubting God. In a few chapters' time, we're going to see them make the golden calf, and we're going to hear God say to Moses, look, you go ahead with Israel into the promised land without me, because if I travel with you even for a moment, I will break out against Israel's sin. Israel are not guiltless. They are a sinful people. And so neither Egypt or Israel are going to survive on the night that God comes to town in judgment, because both deserve his judgment. It's like God is the blinding sun, and both Egypt and Israel are like bacteria that might actually like the sun, but actually can't possibly exist in its presence. They cannot survive being with God. And so, if God is to go through Egypt, everyone in Egypt, including Israel, will actually fall under his judgment. And that is actually what happens. When God goes through Egypt, in every single house there is a death, including including the houses of the Israelites. The difference is, in the Israelites' homes, it's a lamb that dies, not a firstborn son. That lamb is a substitute for their firstborn. Israel are not spared God's judgment because they're good. Have a look at chapter 12. Look at this, chapter 12, verse 13. God says, The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see your good works, I will pass over you. No. When I see your moral purity, I will pass over you. No, he says, when I see the blood of the Lamb, I will pass over you. Israel are not spared God's judgment because they're good. They're not spared God's judgment because they're moral. They're spared God's judgment because the Lamb takes the judgment for them, in a sense. It's this really tense scene in Exodus where Israel are starting to slowly realise God's immense, unapproachable, almost dangerous purity. And they're starting to get to know their own sin and guilt puts them in God's anger and wrath. And that God, the God that they kind of can't exist with, is about to go to Israel and go door to door. That's pretty tense. Can you imagine how they're feeling? They gather up all these lambs on the tenth day. There, there must be. There, there are hundreds of thousands of families. So there are hundreds of thousands of lambs. One lamb for each family. So there's hundreds of thousands of lambs in the suburb that Israel live in. They keep them for four days until the fourteenth day of the month. So for four days, there's hundreds of thousands of lambs. Can you imagine the noise? Uh, the bleating. The barring. And then sunset finally comes on the 14th night. God is coming soon. And so every family gets the lamb, takes it out the front, takes a knife, and the noise goes crazy as the lambs, hundreds of thousands of lambs start to stress and then silence. 
And for the first time in four days, there is silence as all those lambs are killed at sunset. The blood is drained, and people start to paint blood on their doors. There is blood everywhere in the suburb that Israel lives in. They take the lamb's body inside, they roast it, and they eat it while the blood dries on the door. And did you notice in the reading, God tells them to eat that meal in a particular way. He, just, he said to them, eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, sandals on your feet, and a staff in your hand. Meaning, eat it, ready to go, ready to run. I guess, like, if you were going to do a modern translation of that, you might say, eat this meal in your active wear, uh, with sneakers on your feet. In other words, eat it ready to go. Because God is about to come through Egypt and every firstborn in the Egyptian houses will die and they will let them go finally after 400 years. It is really tense. And then it happens. Look at chapter 12, verse 29. God arrives in Egypt. Verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, but there was not a house without somebody dead. It's total chaos. Can you imagine the scene? Pharaoh calling for his staff to come, but his staff don't come because they've had deaths in their family as well. There is a death in every house in Egypt. And so Pharaoh summons Moses one last time and, and commands him to leave Egypt. They're not just letting them go, they are pushing them out. They do not want them here anymore. They cannot get rid of them quick enough. And finally, their rescue comes after 400 years. That night, they walk free. After 400 years of slavery, they are rescued. Can you imagine that feeling? Uh, I reckon when those photos went around our office, we could kind of grasp just what those miners felt. Just the, the absolute feeling of relief of finally being rescued after being 900 metres below the earth. That would be nothing, wouldn't it? That would be nothing compared to the feeling of being released and free after 400 years of slavery and oppression and murder. Imagine what that would feel like to just walk out of Egypt. That is a feeling, actually, if you noticed in the passage, God does not want them to ever forget. And so God commands Israel to do certain things every year to remember that event. Now, unfortunately, we didn't have time to do this in the Bible reading, uh, but I'd love you to do this maybe tonight or later tomorrow. If you read from chapter 11 to chapter 13, which records the whole rescue of Israel from slavery with this Passover, if you read all those chapters, only 40% of those chapters is actually about the rescue. Only 40%. The other 60% is about all the stuff that they have to do every year to remember it. Now let that sink in for a second. More than half of the account is God telling them what they need to do every 12 months to remember this rescue that is unfolding. Uh, just think about that. Imagine if our Australian media did the same thing with the rescue of those two miners. So 60% of everything that was written while the rescue was still going on, 60% of the news reports, 60% of the stuff that politicians said was all about the planning that we're going to do as a nation every 12 months to remember this rescue, which hasn't actually happened yet, but is currently going on. 
Uh, well, that's what happens in Exodus. More than half of this story is all the stuff that Israel have got to do to remember this account every 12 months, which tells you something. Uh, that tells you that remembering this rescue is something that is very important to God. God gives them all these things to do, to remember it. He gives them these festivals, the festival of the unleavened bread. Seven days where they're supposed to eat bread made without yeast and when their kids ask, hey, why are we eating this bread without yeast? They're supposed to say to their kids, it's because God rescued us from slavery to Pharaoh and we left in such a hurry we didn't have time to put yeast in our bread. Uh, He gets them to consecrate every firstborn. Every firstborn son and every firstborn cattle and when their children say, hey, Why are we doing this? They're supposed to say it's because God rescued us by taking the life of Pharaoh's firstborn. We also read they're supposed to have this Passover meal. Every year, they're to take a lamb and kill it on the night of the Passover and remember the night that God came to Egypt. They killed the lambs and God passed over their houses and rescued them. That's why it's called the Passover. And for a thousand years, that's actually what they did. They ate the Passover meal every year to remember the night that they killed the lamb, painted the blood on the door, and God rescued them. They ate that meal every year for over 1,500 years, every generation, right down to the generation of Jesus. And in fact, that's the meal that Jesus and his disciples are eating at the Last Supper. They're actually eating. On the night that Jesus was betrayed to go to the cross, they're eating the Passover meal where they remember the event of the lamb that was killed to rescue Israel from slavery. But on that night, something different happens. After 1,500 years of Israel using that meal to remember the Passover event in Egypt, Jesus stands up and he does not say, do this in remembrance of the time that God rescued you from slavery to Pharaoh. You know what he says, don't you? He stands up at the Passover meal and says, from now on, do this in remembrance of me. He takes the bread and he says, this is my body given for you, eat this in remembrance of me. He takes the wine and he says, this is my blood given for you, do this in remembrance of me. That is crazy. Now let me show you just a little bit of a thing of how crazy that is. Uh, now, we were actually quite sad in the mining community in 2012 when that mine that uh, collapsed on those uh, two guys was no longer economically viable and it closed. Uh, yeah, it closed in 2012, but to make sure that nobody ever forgot it, uh, they opened a small museum. And since then, actually there's been over half a million people go to that museum. Has anyone gone? Oh, you must if you're in Tasmania. Uh, it's really fascinating. Now, can you imagine if I'm there and I'm at this museum that's, that's all about the rescue of these two miners and some tourists come along and I say, oh, hi, welcome. Uh, my name's Mike Horgan. I'm so glad you're at this museum. Uh, this museum was set up so people would remember and would remember me and the contribution that I made to the mining community for the 12 years that I kind of worked here. That would be very self-centered, wouldn't it? It'd be crazy, shocking, rude, almost. That's what Jesus just did. He just did that for the Passover. God gave his people the Passover meal, saying, do this in remembrance of the time that I rescued you from slavery to Egypt. And Jesus stands up at the Passover meal and says, do this in remembrance of me and how I rescued you from sin. Now that, that's crazy, right? 
unless, unless he's actually right. Unless the original Passover event that happened 1,500 years ago is actually about him and not Israel. And that's the amazing thing about the Passover. It is actually about Jesus. That original Passover in Exodus is not primarily about rescuing Israel. It's primarily about setting up a concept that would help God's people understand the rescue that Jesus would come and do 1,500 years later. The whole point of the Passover and the Passover lamb is to get people ready to understand the true and greater and bigger rescue that God had planned 1,500 years later. But Israel, they were just rescued from slavery to Pharaoh. But Jesus would rescue people from slavery to sin and death and the devil. Israel, they were rescued by the death of a spotless lamb whose blood was painted on their wooden doorframe. We're rescued by the death of a sinless Jesus whose blood spilt on the wooden cross. For Israel, that lamb was their substitute. For us, Jesus is ours. And that's why Paul says that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's why John, when he sees Jesus for the first time, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, when God rescued Israel from slavery to Egypt, do you realise that he could have done anything he wanted? He could have caused the Egyptians just to fall into a deep sleep and all of Israel to just walk out. He could have caused the flood to come through and Israel be rescued. He could have done anything he wanted, but he chose to rescue Israel by the blood of the Passover lamb. Why? Because as shocking as it sounds, the Passover event in Egypt was not primarily about rescuing Israel. It's about giving the world a way of understanding the true and greater rescue that God had been planning from the beginning of time to happen in Jesus. Ah, can you see now? Can you see now why God was so concerned that Israel would never forget the Passover? Do you remember we mentioned that chapter 11 to 13, 60% of it is all the stuff that they've got to do every year to make sure they never forget it, to make sure they always remember it. This is why. Because the Passover in Egypt was about giving the world a way of understanding the greater rescue that Jesus was coming to do. And so they need to remember the Passover for 1,500 years so that when Jesus comes, they actually understand him. They understand and see the rescue. The Passover is actually all about Jesus. And that's why, that's why on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he stands up at the Passover meal and he does not say, eat this meal in remembrance of the Passover event where God saved you from Pharaoh. He stands up and he says, eat this meal in remembrance of me and what I'm about to do to rescue you from sin and death and the devil. Because Jesus is the whole point of the Passover. And ever since that night, the last supper, where Jesus took the bread and said, this is my body given for you, and took the wine and said, this is my blood spilt for you. Every, uh, for every many years, Christians have done exactly that. Now, we don't call it the Passover meal anymore. Uh, we uh, call it communion or we call it uh, the Lord's Supper because we're remembering the Lord. Uh, we eat the bread that reminds us of Christ's body given for us, we drink the wine or the juice that reminds us of his blood spilled for us and we remember that Jesus is our Passover lamb slain for us. 
Now, I think you guys had communion about two weeks ago, and you guys are having it again uh, in, I think, two weeks' time. It's a regular part of life here at Uni Church. Uh, now, we're not going to have it uh, tonight, uh, but it is a regular part of being here. And so, I'm going to say three things, actually, about communion. It's really helpful for us to understand as a community. Uh, three things that we learn from communion by understanding this passage in Exodus. Firstly, I want to say that communion remembers that Christ rescued us. It doesn't repeat it. Communion is about remembering that Jesus has already rescued us. Communion, it doesn't take your sin away. Communion reminds us that Jesus has already done it. Secondly, communion is for the rescued. It is for those who have been rescued by Jesus. Because communion is about remembering the rescue that we have through Jesus... You can only do that if you've been rescued. Like, you can't actually remember your rescue if you haven't actually been rescued. Certainly in my church, uh, on Sunday mornings, we have a lot of non-Christians with us. It's wonderful. They're part of our uh, community. Uh, They're there for lunch. They're there for Sundays. They're with us during the week. Uh, The one thing that they're not uh, with us in is communion. Because communion is for the rescued, for those who are trusting in the blood of Jesus and walking a life of obedience to his lordship. Uh, thirdly, communion, it's really serious. You know, we remember communion in what? Maybe a five or ten minute communion at the end of the service? Uh, when God set up the original kind of memory aid for the Passover, it took a whole week. A whole week of special diets, uh, several festivals, the Passover meal, a whole week done to remember the Passover and the lamb that was slain for their rescue from slavery. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting that I'm going to speak to Jeff about making communion a week-long kind of uh, process for us, but I am suggesting that when it comes time again for communion in a couple of weeks' time, communion must never be a quick and fleeting thought about Jesus. Communion must never be a quick nod of the head or a quick cheers of the glass to our Lord. It must be a serious and sustained and focused time of remembering his death for our rescue from sin. So that means when you stand in the big circle and uh, you take your bread and your juice, we're actually supposed to keep remembering Jesus. It's not a time to joke with the person next to you or ask them how their week was. You know, after those two miners got out, uh, quite a long time after that, they had a a service uh, where one of them returned back underground uh, to remember his friend who did not make it out. Can you imagine what that felt like? To actually spend time with other miners in your community, reflecting on your rescue, but also reflecting on the one guy that didn't actually make it. Imagine those emotions. And just imagine it. It's silent as people reflected on that. And then imagine that silence breaking because some guy in the back starts to talk to the guy next to him and says, hey, man, how was your weekend? Did you see the footy? How good was that goal? Do you sense how terrible... How cringeworthy that would actually be. For Christians, communion, that's way more important than remembering what happened at that mine. It's for remembering that our rescue came at the price of Jesus. It's not a time to ask the person next to you how your week was. It's a time to be single-minded and focused on one thing and one thing only. And that is Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. Uh, Now, we're not taking communion tonight, but 
The good news is, if you were paying attention during the announcement, you guys are going to do that in an extended way on Thursday. It's going to be really great because you guys are going to have a Passover meal. There'll be the lamb, there'll be the bread, there'll be the wine and the juice. Uh, Please go to that on Thursday. That will be great. That will be an extended time to focus your minds and your thoughts and to remember with joy and thanksgiving that Jesus, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed. That'll be a great night. I really do pray that you'll get to it. Amen.